Hey Keto Freaks, here's an update on Keto Fest. We have a date! The weekend of July 15th and 16th, 2017. Keto Fest is a ketogenic festival for everyone, not just doctors and nutritionists. Richard Morris and I, along with a host of keto rock stars, are turning the entire coastal town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic the entire weekend of July 15 and 16. Some of the best minds in keto have already said they want to come and speak, including Jimmy Moore, Megan Ramos, Ivor Cummins, Dr. Jeff Gerber, Dr. Eric Westman, and Dr. Ted Naiman. We'll have an outdoor food festival with live music, fitness lessons, cooking lessons, walking tours, bike tours, Segway tours, movies on the historic Guard Theater's 60-foot screen, and of course, great talks by our rock stars. We'll be doing a Kickstarter campaign soon to sell tickets. Meantime, go to KetoFest.com and register. KetoFest, real keto for real people. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet for three years, come this April. Yeah. And when I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes, but within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. Yeah. I've also lost about 80 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. Yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. Yeah, and you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Sure are. We love to cook and we love to eat. Mmm, yeah. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. No, that's true. <laughs> so, let's start podcast number 51, Insulin Resistance from the Ground Up. Fifty-one. Fifty-one episodes. I know. <laughs> That's incredible. It is crazy. Almost up to a full year. Next, next week will be the year. That's right. How cool is that? And also, this show marks the first show that we have produced when our Facebook group has gone away. Well, on the ketogenic forum. We'll talk more about that. We will. All right. So, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Richard? Yeah, sure. It's uh, 20 grams or less of carbohydrates per day. Yep. Uh, protein scales with your lean body mass. Uh, and for us, for Carl and I, it's been between one and one and a half grams of uh, protein per kilogram of lean body mass. Mm -hmm. And then fat is to satiety. And that's really where we're getting all of our energy from. We get our energy from fat. We use protein to build our bodies and we sneer at carbohydrates. That's right. And remember Richard's haiku, <laughs> when hungry, you eat. 
Yes. Mostly fat with some protein. Stop when you are full. <laughs> there you go. That's the keto haiku. <laughs> That is such great advice. Mm. I, uh, for example, yesterday I th- was trying to make it to lunch. I was going to, my plan was to eat at, you know, two or three o'clock, just one meal. Right. But 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I got hungry. Mm. So I ate. Sure. And guess what? I haven't eaten since. That's right. It's been 24 hours and I'm not hungry. So guess what? I'm not eating. Don't eat. If you're not hungry, don't eat. <laughs> That's the secret because you, you, you eat fat. And you get satiated, you turn on the fat-burning spigot, mm. and as long as there's a steady supply of fat for you to eat, you're not hungry. That's right. It's just amazing. Incredible. So tell me, Carl, how was your week this week? My week was really good, Richard. Let's see. I was in London last week, and then I spent a couple of days in Copenhagen. Right. And uh, normally, traveling is pretty stressful, mm. you know, in terms of, and, and it makes me want to eat more. And you know, when I overeat, I overeat protein and Mm -hmm. eat too many times during the day. And, and I still eat high fat, but, and that, you know, that tends to raise my weight level a little bit and uh, also make me more hungry, but I didn't do that this time. I uh, had a very steady, even diet plan and it just, just worked out. And I was able to fast when I couldn't eat good food. And I was able to just eat the stuff that I could eat when uh, when it was available, and I just had a wonderful week, and the scales reflect it. Um, I'm, I'm on a losing streak, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. One other thing that happened this week, Richard, is that an infection in my hand came back, ah. and this it started a couple of weeks ago. I was basically, I got an itch or a rash or something, or poison ivy, I don't know what it was, on my hand, and mm. I scratched it, and it got sort of scabbed over, and then my car battery died, and I had to replace my car battery, and in doing so, I peeled open the scab, all that dirt and grime got in there, and Nasty. I couldn't clean it off fast enough, and it got infected, and I had to go on an antibiotic. Uh, doxycycline, I believe. And I did the full course of doxycycline and it went away almost, mm. but then slowly came back. And now I'm dreading having to go on more freaking antibiotics. And it just, uh, just makes me mad. It's just a skin rash on the back of your wrist. Yeah, but it's all inflamed and it itches, mm. you know, and the more I scratch it, the more it's going to open up. So I have to keep not scratching it and... Uh, yeah. just not, it's uh, not related to the ketogenic diet, really, but... Uh, no, mean, not at all. There is a rash that is associated with the ketogenic diet, which we've seen a couple of times, yeah. both in our Facebook group and in, on the ketogenic forums. People have asked about this. Yep. This is And there's it. a lot of theories about what it could be. Uh, this is not that, no. Yeah. And so the other thing is I went looking to see about, you know, fasting for an infection, right? All right, yeah. Because cause this is sort of what people have done through all of history uh, sure. is the reason why they don't eat when they are infected or have a virus or something like that. Yeah. It's sort of a natural built-in reaction to bring on the autophagy and that, you know, boosts the immune system and stuff. However... This, uh, I haven't eaten in a day and it's just gotten worse. So there isn't, I'm not going to risk it. Uh, yeah. you know, there's, uh, antibiotics. That's why they're here. That's right. So that was my week, Richard. How was yours? Uh, my week was not the best. I got cancer. <laughs> All right. Come on. Well, actually, now. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't entirely get cancer. You didn't get cancer. You have a tumor, right? I have a tumor. Yeah. So what happened was, uh, I have developed a slow injury in my left knee. 
yeah. over the past maybe three or four weeks. And uh, it's it's because I've done so, so much endurance cycling and, and I've been doing a lot of hills and uh, my knee was just getting more and more sore until eventually it felt like almost I had no lubrication in the joint at all. And wow. it was okay if I was moving the joint and it would be inflamed after cycling. But if I stop the joint, if I'm sit- seated still for a moment, you know, for more than about a minute, it starts to seize up and then it's very painful to move. Wow. So um, now I thought that it could be a meniscus damage. So I went to a GP and he got me an MRI and uh, the MRI of the knee actually pulled up three things. There was fairly severe complex tear of my meniscus on the medial side, so that's in the inside of my knee, yeah. and that's where a lot of my pain used to be. When I when I would run on treadmills, I'd get shin splints in that area, mm. and that's why a lot of that pain happens in that area. Uh, but it also found that I had uh, tendonitis in the quadriceps uh, tendon, which is it's a tendon that attaches to three different muscles across your your the top of your thigh, and it wraps the tendon wraps over the top of your kneecap and then it attaches down onto your shin bone. Oh. And uh, I looked at the MRI and I could see you, you, the tendonitis is very very visible. So it's a fairly severe tendonitis, but not yet any tears yeah. in the tendon, which is like that's the next stage of tendonitis. So that's it's possible that this that could be repaired, and that is really what's that's what's making the 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 majority of the pain uh, in my knee currently is from that tendonitis. But another thing that the MRI showed up is that I have a tumor on the top of my tibia, which is the shin bone. Right. And uh, or one of the shin bones, and it's a fourteen millimeter tumor, uh, one point four centimeters. About I guess it's about half an inch, and uh, it's uh, spherical. The, the, on the MRI, it looks like somebody's put a thumbprint right at that location of the bone. Wow! And I've done a bit of. Re- I haven't been back to my GP yet. Um, that'll happen sometime this week. But I've been researching this particular tumor. It turns out that this is one of these tumors that most people have. Uh, for without even knowing about because it's asymptomatic and it it really it's benign it's there and you only notice it when you get an MRI. In fact, right. something like two point nine percent of people who get an MRI of their knee, this tumor pops up as as being one of the things. So um, the only time when it's actually uh, warranted to do anything about it, where, where it's actually not a benign tumor, is when it causes pain. But of course, there's the tendonitis and the meniscus damage are both creating pain locally, so it's hard to tell if the tumour is causing pain. So I suspect that the likely treatment is going to be physio and stretching for the tendonitis Mm. um, and then uh, probably arthroscopic repair of the meniscus. Mm. And then once we've got those two treated, there should be no pain. If there is any pain from that point on, then the tumour needs to be looked after, curataged out and packed yeah, out, I, guess, right. I assume, with a, with bo- a transplanted bone. But um, I'm not I'm not particularly worried about it because you know, 70% of these tumours are, uh, are benign and they're one of these things that a lot of doctors 
initially got upset at how easy it was to get MRIs. You go into a shopping mall and get an MRI, mm-hmm. and it's going to show up a couple of tumours in your body. Right. Um, and right. these are mostly benign and, you know, fatty lipomas and all these kinds of things that really aren't, uh, right, yeah. aren't anything to worry about. It's the metastasizing that turns it into cancer. That's right, yeah. So, yeah. or at least, I mean, it, it, it makes it a threat. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's uh, that's my week. Um, so I'm dealing with that. I'm icing my knee and, and staying off my bike. And, and that must suck. Yeah, it does because I'm about to go skiing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going. I'm going to Breckenridge, so you know, there's lovely powder. It always happens when the snow mm. is good. My knee starts to misbehave. Are you so. going to try anyway? Yeah, hell yeah! <laughs> I've been skiing since I, I've been skiing since I was three years old. I've been skiing for forty nine years, so right. um, I absolutely love skiing. So uh, yeah, I'm going to um, I'm going to wear a brace if I have to. I'm going to take opiates if I have to. Oh jeez! Um, you know, all right. Yeah, well, no, I'm good. Not me. The last time I went skiing, I went. I actually did. I went down a big mountain. Yeah. On my face. <laughs> That's not an appropriate ski. <laughs> no. I just don't have the practice, but it was fun. Yeah. You know, especially yeah. towards the bottom when I was completely soaked. So, yeah, that was my week. Great. And that brings us to. Mail! Mail! Uh, 51 episodes of Mail! Yeah. On one episode of Female! Yeah, that's right. All right, I'll go first. This is from Sarah in the forum under the thread called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, where we have lots of great humor. Uh, Tom Seast is responsible for most of it. Actually, that's not true. (laughs) He is a funny guy. Mm -hmm. All right, so here it is. 20 years ago, we had Steve Jobs, Johnny Cash, and Bob Hope. Now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. Oh, dear. Please, God, <laughs> don't let Kevin Bacon die, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> so the next mail we've got is uh, a post from a member of our forum, but you won't be able to read it unless you register. Because of the personal nature of health issues, the entire health topic isn't reachable by search engines yep. or by people who are anonymous. You have to have an account, yep. and you really have to be in good standing for at least 15 minutes before you can have access to these. So it sort of rules out bots and other trolls engines getting access, trolls getting access yeah. to it. So anyway, um, here's the question. So I have a relative that is type 2 diabetic. Mm. He's much older than I am, and any time he asks me about my diet and I start talking, he states old adages like, calories in, calories out. Mm. In his defense, he has lost a significant amount of weight over the last few years. The issue is he thinks he is healthy, yet takes more medicine today than he did when he was much heavier. Mm. I'm searching for a way to get to try and get him to see the light, so to speak. He's very analytical and researches a lot. I just can't seem to turn him on to this. And I know it would help him. Yeah. So I responded to this because uh, this is a common question we have. How do we introduce new people to the ketogenic diet? Sure. What's a good explanation for them? Yeah. Especially if somebody who's got a, a roughly analytic bent and is is interested in the in the concept. Yeah. And one way I find to explain this is that the body likes glucose in a safe, normal range. Mm. Too low and you slip into a coma. Too high and you increase the risk of all the nasty diabetic complications. Yeah. And I linked to a study which which um, explains how your uh, glucose control, your metabolic control, predicts your uh, risk of coronary heart disease in elderly subjects and uh, your uh, association between your ability to maintain your glucose with macrovascular and microvascular complications of mm. diabetes. Mm. 
So the I guess the the Cliff Notes version of those two studies. The first is as your HbA1c, that's your average measure of glucose over three months, as it goes above seven point zero percent. Uh, and this particular, this was particularly in elderly Finnish people. The odds of death from heart disease increase fourfold. So wow. as you go above seven, your chance of death from a heart disease increases fourfold. So that's significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes it worthwhile keeping your glucose below seven. Yeah. Uh, and the second study, which was associating glycemia with macrovascular and microvascular complications, the Cliff Notes version of that is that each one percent reduction in a average uh, HbA1c, which is, again, the three-month uh, measure of glucose, each 1% reduction was associated with reductions in risk of 21% for any endpoint related to diabetes, 21% for deaths related to diabetes, mm. 14% for myocardial infarctions, that's specifically heart attacks, mm-hmm. and 37% for microvascular complications such as kidney disease, blindness, and lower extremity amputation. So that really shows you if you can get your HbA1c down, every 1% reduction is a significant decrease in risk of all of these horrible complications of yep. diabetes. Yep. Um, so if you're on a standard traditional treatment uh, and your doctor is quite happy to have you at 8, 8.0% or 7.5%, which a lot of uh, doctors, certainly in Australia, are happy to uh, to medicate their people to. Right. Uh, they are exposing you to a risk of these complications. And so it's worthwhile talking to them about that. And it's worthwhile considering what my options would be to lower my glucose. Uh, and I explain to people that, um, that if you're diabetic, your ability to control high glucose is broken. Yeah. Uh, insulin is really how we lower glucose when it's too high. And as a diabetic, our ability to use it, either we don't make any or we make so much that our body, body ignores it. Mm-hmm. Somehow our ability to, to control high glucose is broken. So uh, those are the necessary arguments to make. Glucose within a safe zone is safer, and diabetics can't lower glucose to keep it in the safe zone. Uh, and if uh, your friend is technical, you should use the analogy of a thermostat that turns on the AC when the room gets too hot. Mm. For a diabetic, the AC isn't working. Uh, although for glucose, it's not called a thermostat, it's called a glycostat. Yeah. Anyway, then I would explain that the reason that we don't go into a coma when we sleep or when we stop eating for a while is that when our blood glucose goes below the normal range, your liver kicks in to make some glucose for you. Right. Uh, so that's the other side of the operation. We're unable to manage the high glucose, right. but our body is fully capable of managing low glucose. And so uh, I would explain to him then, if you don't eat any sugar or starch, then, you, then, then you're not adding to the problem making high glucose. Right. So what, what that essentially means is that your liver will then take, take charge and make all the glucose you need. And that is something that a lot of people miss, and even nutritionists and dietitians miss, that the liver does kick in, gluconeogenesis kicks in, yeah. it does create all the glucose that your brain needs, and uh, you know, there, there's still people out there who are qualified, but say that, you know, no, you're going to go into a coma if you don't eat sugar, and that's just crazy. Yeah. Well, that yeah. obviously doesn't happen, because I haven't eaten sugar for three years, and yeah. I'm, I'm yet to be troubled by a coma. Yeah, that's but, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the I think the bottom line really is that uh, that you want to maintain your sugar in a tight range, in a tight safe range, and the easiest way to do that 
if you've got a broken mechanism for dealing with high glucose is to trust your machinery that handles low glucose. And you do that by not eating sugar and starch and uh, letting your body – it's basically a backup mechanism for managing glucose. Mm -hmm. At least you can think of it as a backup mechanism for managing glucose where your primary mechanism is broken. Right. Very good, Richard. For our final piece here in mail, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to read another piece of mail, but I am going to encourage everybody to head on over to ketogenicforums.com, which is where we got both of the mails, mm. let's say, both of the messages or posts that we read today. And uh, there's a very good reason for that. Our, our Facebook group is going away. Of course, we're not Stopping the podcast, two keto dudes will go on and on. And uh, the thing is, we just outgrew the forum. And we did a whole show about the ketogenic forums, uh, episode 47, where we actually talked to the guy who wrote the software. Yeah, we did. That we're using Discourse. Yeah. As a quick snapshot, as of now, we have about 3,600 members wow. in the forum. We had 1.1 million page views last month. Wow. That's incredible. So the people that are there are really getting a lot out of it. We have topics and categories that fit anything that you'd might be interested in. And it's not just like nobody's posting. It's it's a active community. Mm. Um, so the big categories are newbies. So, you know, information for people just getting started. Sure. We have a food section where we have recipes mm, and food. <laughs> Boring keto as well. Boring keto, fat, protein, vegetables, yeah. meat, yeah. zero carbs, carnivores, kids, kitchen tools and gadgets, alcohol, keto on a budget, all that kind of stuff. We have a we have a show me the science section where we have uh, links to studies, which is great. You could spend all day just reading the studies. And the other thing that we have is a search facility. Now, unlike Facebook, uh, where if you try to search in our forum for any unique word that's been mentioned in a post in the past week or so, uh, and Facebook comes back and says, no, I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah. Uh, But you know that you've made that exact post uh, not five minutes ago, for example. We've tested the theory, yeah. We've tested the theory. Facebook search is utterly horrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Utterly unusable. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when somebody asked why are you leaving the forum, and I would go through a complicated explanation explaining how Facebook is designed to addict you to new or to novelty. And I explained the part of the brain that is being triggered and causing a dopamine response. Facebook knows about this and they use this particular technique to cause you to not notice that they're advertising to you. Yeah, right. So as soon as you see something that's not new, all of a sudden you start noticing the adverts. You'll probably notice this if you've uh, if you've seen an advert pop up over and over again. Right. You notice that, but adverts that are that are that are one offs, you probably don't even notice that you're being advertised to. Mm. And and I've mentioned probably 30 times in the forum the specific part of the brain that is triggered by this, this novelty, the novelty center of the brain. And um, if you do a search in our forum for that particular term, you won't find it. Facebook right. will say, no, nobody's ever mentioned that in the, in the forum. Yeah. So it's a perfect example of why the Facebook search doesn't work. Our, our ketogenic forums search, however, great. it has not let me down once. Nope. It is outstanding. Yep. It really is. If you have, if you want to ask a question about PCOS, type it in and it will give you the last 10 messages that had a response about PCOS. 
and yeah. it will rank them by the one that it considers to be the most relevant. Because people can vote them up or down. That's right. The search part of that functionality is probably the greatest part of the ketogenic forms. Yeah. I can find information there whenever I need to. Exactly. And uh, the other problem with Facebook, of course, is that when you're reading comments, people generally skip over the comments that have already yeah. been made and go right to the bottom. And so they end up either repeating stuff or asking questions that have already been answered. Yeah. Case in point, every time we make a post that says, hey, we're closing this forum, somebody <laughs> will ask a question like, uh, is there an app? This was great. Is there an app? And I say, yes, here it is. And I add a link to it. Three comments later. Yes, but is, is there, there an, an app? app? <laughs> I know. You know, it's incredible. So this is the kind of this is the problem. Uh, we've also had suggestions from people in the uh, in the Facebook group that they take over the admin and we keep it going. Uh, and the answer is no. No, that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. No, we've we've uh, we've actually had people offer to buy it from us, and people have said, you know, um, I'd be more than happy to take over the admin functions of your right. group. Uh, why would you shut down such a good group? Look, uh, the thing is, it's not going to happen, and I'll tell you why. We built this group up over nine months by being open and listening, and when we can, providing help. Right. Some 13,000 people are in our Facebook group because of what we do and how we do it. And, you know, I would suggest to people, you know, if you want a 13,000-member group, build one from scratch That's organically. Right. You know, it can be done. Don't sort of try and buy somebody else's and then change the rules on them. We're moving our engagement with this community to the ketogenic forums. Right. And that's because it's the most efficient way for us to help people. And um, and let's face it, we're building a knowledge base that people can search. Yeah. And they don't have to ask the questions. They can search and find, you know, discussions and join in the discussion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But as far as Facebook, a lot of people still want to be able to use Facebook. One of the reasons we're shutting down our group is to spawn the creation of hundreds of Facebook groups right. started by our members. Uh, and we have a list on our forums of, of all of these uh, uh, Facebook groups that we know about, mm -hmm. regional ones where people are focusing on helping people local to them. Yep. And we've also got special interest ones like uh, Daisy's got one for Squarey Girls. <laughs> uh, That's know. great. And my opinion is a Facebook works really well for groups probably between 500 and 1,000. Right. 3,000 is the functional limit. Yeah. Above 3,000, our, our group was horrible to manage. Right. And, you know, it, that's why we left Facebook. Yep. Seriously. Uh, once we got over 3,000, it's been, it's been horrible to run. And at 13,000, um, it's, it's almost unusable for us. So, um, so that's why we're leaving. All right. So a lot of people say, well, I come to Facebook for the social aspect of it. Our forums are very social yeah. and all you have to do is read the latest stuff, join in the conversation, jump in, you get notified when people respond, just like Facebook. It's, it's the same thing, except without the trolls and, and constantly answering the same questions. All right, that's enough of that. Let's bring on mm. Ivor. Ivor Cummins is a chemical engineer who spent 25 years in engineering lead and engineering manager positions. He's worked in the medical device, special purpose equipment, and electronic component industries, always gravitating toward the most complex interactions where the physics comes alive. His specialty throughout has been leadership in complex problem-solving methodology. The ultimate destination was always root cause resolution in the minimum time frame. 
a true engineer. Following less than ideal blood test results, he went back to his biochemical engineering roots and intensively studied the mechanistic physics and primary drivers of dyslipidemia, elevated GGT, and serum ferritin. And he'll tell us what those mean, I'm sure. Ivor has analyzed several hundred related papers and studies carried out over the last five decades, and a few prior to this period. He found the value of the technical expertise gained during his career to be a paramount, indeed crucial, importance in this odyssey, realizing that to be successful in determining root cause and solution in this complex arena requires far more than a general medical background. Welcome back, Ivor. Hey, thanks, Carl. Thanks, Richard. Great to see you guys again. So, Ivor, what spawned this conversation was we were talking to Gabor, who's one of our uh, admins on the ketogenic forums in the back channel, the admin channel. And uh, he was talking about um, some research that he had done about how insulin resistance develops and, you know, from a bottom up approach rather than an observational approach looking down into what causes this or what causes that or what causes this going backwards from the from the symptoms and from diabetes down he's sort of explained the process based on studies and research that he's done and he's a biologist from the bottom up and and you took this research and ran with it and are now uh explaining it in a very easy to understand way so i think I, i'm just gonna let you run with that ivor all right. Thanks, Carl. Well, yeah, Gabor is uh, an extraordinary individual. And I'd spent a couple of years kind of, you know, researching insulin resistance. And I'm pretty fixated on the mechanisms too, mm -hmm. not just on what you do to be healthy. Uh, but when I discovered Gabor and his lower insulin Facebook group, I began to realize, you know, there's pieces there that I was missing. So I always saw the liver as the kind of center of insulin resistance or yeah. hyperinsulinemia. And I began to realize how important the adipose tissue or the fat tissue is. So that's where Gabor has kind of unearthed probably all of the steps as you progress through insulin resistance to type 2 diabetes. And would you say the core revelation is that fat cells become insulin resistant first? Pretty much essentially, yeah, that the fat cells become dysfunctional. And that affects your systemic insulin sensitivity. Mm. Now, kind of simultaneously, if you're doing the bad thing, the rest of your system is taking some punches too. So it's not pure fat first and then pure switch to liver and muscle. But, but the adipose is an early problem that's very significant, we believe. And I've worked with Gabor over the months. Uh, I just downloaded actually our messages there to print out. And uh, I don't know, it's five or 600 messages over the last couple of months. <laughs> Doesn't <Wow>. surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And nearly every one has a paper attached. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. so he is amazing. It's been, it's been fantastic. Yeah, so I credit him in my recent talks, which I gave at the Physicians for Ancestral Health in Miami last week, mm, which yeah. was all doctors. Yeah, they're good guys. Mm. So that was a pretty hardcore talk that'll be released shortly. And then I did a higher level one touching on this and the usual material in the low carb USA keto getaway in Miami. Right. Anyway, Gabor, so we shared so many papers and he put me right on some of the mechanisms I wasn't so aware of. And I did a lot of research offline, always returning back to him, comparing notes. And essentially what comes out of it all is early on when you become um, a bit dysfunctional, you know, you put on a little weight 
and you begin to have a problem. It appears that the adipose tissue is a very important signaling organ. Now I knew it was important for signaling, but I didn't realize it was a key place in the early stages. Right. What basically happens is essentially, and if you have parents who are type 2 diabetic, you'll end up with a, a, a poor insulin response inherently. So this genetic thing people talk about, yeah, there's a genetic factor. Right. But when they did studies on people whose parents were diabetic versus similar healthy 40-year-olds, and they even did 28-year-olds, and they looked at their insulin receptor system, hmm. they were able to uh, identify that the people with the parentage, even though they were completely healthy and all their bloods looked great, same as the non-parent guys, when they looked at their insulin response, it was much lower. Is this their insulin receptors systemically? Yeah, particularly adipose tissue I was focusing on. Gotcha. But generally. Right, right. Yeah, they, they are more prone to becoming insulin resistant. And they can actually see that by measuring their insulin receptor substrate and their um, PI3 kinase pathways. So I won't get into that detail. Okay. But it's fascinating. But another interesting thing was all the guys with the parents who are currently healthy, no problems, they're slim. Mm. They have this low insulin receptor activity, but also the authors didn't realize, but I looked at their data, all of the parent guys failed the craft test. Ah. Really? Yes, they failed it. Now, the authors of the study just showed post-glucose insulin curves, and they yeah. didn't refer to craft. And they just noted, yeah, these guys are a little higher in their insulin, which makes sense. Mm. But I looked and uh, went through the data, all the parent guys failed a craft test. All the non-parent guys passed it. Incredible. <laughs> and by parent guys, you mean the, the people whose parents had diabetes. Exactly. Yeah. So all the parent, the guys who had both parents with diabetes, they all failed the craft test. Wow. And the people who had no family history all passed, which makes sense. But it shows you the power yeah, of that test. And these weren't necessarily diabetic. No, these were healthy. This was the beauty. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. I have one study with 28-year-olds. They're all healthy, all good bloods matched, mm. but just one half have got both parents diabetic, one half no history. And the same with the 42-year-olds. There's multiple studies, and they all give the same result. <laughs> yeah, even though they're fully healthy and matched to people with no history, their insulin receptor is completely different, and they generally fail craft tests. Wow. So they are exposed to the problem we're talking about much more during life. And they need to eat much more carefully. Yeah. Uh, they can yeah. still fix themselves. There's no problem. If they eat the proper diet, right. they never have to have the problem. Yeah. But they are more prone. And you can see it in their genetic test of their receptors. So <laughs> what did this mean for the next phase of research? Right. So basically, well, if we get back to the adipose, so it would appear from lots of studies, and many of these are in the last 10 years, you know, these mm -hmm. are recent studies. Yeah. Uh, the adipose tissue, when it is meant to kind of soak up what you eat and then release it later when you're fasting. So I coined the term uh, a dipo shield, and I'm ah, now viewing sure. the adipose. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> so I'm now viewing adipose tissue as an extremely important shield right. between what you eat, you know, and how your system can deal with it. So yeah. there's four types of people really. There's metabolic, metabolically healthy, normal weight, yeah, right, mm -hmm. and those guys have got a moderate amount of of fat tissue subcutaneous right. you know, fat tissue yeah. and it's very functional 
So it behaves beautifully. And if they occasionally misbehave, there's no problem. No bullets get through to your system. Right. Mm. Uh, and they're insulin sensitive, naturally, and they have very low risk for disease. Yeah. Then you have metabolically unhealthy normal weight. And these guys are not fat, they're slim, mm. but they have um, not too much adipose tissue, more than the healthy guys, right. but they have more visceral adipose tissue in and around their organs. Right. Yeah. So those are tophies, yes. thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Exactly. And their fat tissue now is not expanding enough to, to take the bullets. Yeah. So essentially, they have a limited expansion, so they stay slim, but it's not performing its shield function anymore. Right. It's dysfunctional. And often that will lead to inflammation. Mm. And those guys have a problem. They're insulin resistant, hyperinsulinemic, and they carry the risk. Mm. Uh, the third part, type of person is metabolically unhealthy obese. Mm. And these are the classic, very heavy guys who are insulin resistant and they're metabolically unhealthy. Yeah, right. They've expanded their standard fat tissue hugely, right? Fine. And they have a lot of visceral adipose tissue built as well, but it's not functioning. They're, they've passed their threshold of safe fat, even though they have lots of it. And it's becoming inflamed and it's no longer shielding them, right? So they're in trouble too. Yeah, they, right. they carry yeah. a lot of risk. And the last group that's really interesting, which I got a few papers from uh, Gabor, and some of my own, are metabolically healthy obese. And these guys are just as big as the unhealthy guys. 45 BMI, one of the studies says, which is wow. pretty heavy, yeah? That, that's where I started, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but these guys, they've expanded their standard fat tissue, and they have visceral fat tissue as well, quite a bit, not as much as the unhealthy guys, but it's still functioning well. And that's what distinguishes them. Their adipose tissue is not inflamed, doesn't have macrophage activity. It's working really well. And as a result, they're insulin sensitive. Their trig over HDL looks okay. Right. Even their fasting insulin's okay. Right. All their metrics and their risk is low because their fat tissue has expanded a lot and it stayed functional. And their metrics and their risk is good. So you're saying people with uh, less fat cells, but bigger fat cells with more fat in them have a different risk factor than those with more smaller fat cells. Absolutely. And that's another point I made in my talk that it would appear, and I won't go into detail from twin studies where true twins were looked at, and these are hard to do, but they're mm -hmm. very revealing. A twin that becomes fatter than their, their co-twin, if they become fatter by having more fat cells, but they stay small, the fat cells, mm. they are safe. They actually don't show bad uh, metabolic parameters, and they're actually in pretty good shape. Whereas other twin pairs, and again, this is a great compare between slim and fatter twins, mm. they don't expand their number of fat cells so much, but the fat cells become hypertrophic. Uh, they right. get hyper, yeah, they get bigger. And when your fat cells begin to stretch bigger, it recruits immune activity and they become unhealthy. And that's when you begin to go into the cascade. And in these twin studies, the twins with fewer fat cells, but, but they're larger, right? Mm -hmm. Those guys had all the big livers. They had the CRP high. They had the high insulin resistance. They had all the metabolic disease. The full cascade, yeah. 
Yeah, whereas the fatter twins who had more fat cells, but they didn't get bigger, they healthily expanded. Uh, their metrics were as good as their brothers who were slim. Hmm. I wonder how that happens. How does one tend to get more wow. fat cells that are smaller than than bigger fat cells that are fewer? Well, actually, I, I uh, messaged back and forward with Mike Eads on this, and he had some great studies, and Gabor also has some as well. Um, when you get fat young, early in life, you tend to create more fat cells and you may end up more the safer type. And they've seen that in observational oh, studies, but they don't understand it because <laughs> they don't know about what I'm about to tell you. So, um, yeah, so if you, you can have protection from diabetes by becoming uh, overweight very early in life. Hmm. And if you become overweight later in life, it's less easy to create more fat cells from stem cells and are pre-adipocytes, broadly speaking. And you may end up stretching your capacity and making them larger. So that's very high levels simplification. Yeah. It's interesting and, because uh, I look at myself, I, I was a chunky kid, you know, I was, I was, I wasn't obese until I went to college, but, uh, but, you know, all throughout my, you know, early life, I was overweight. I became diabetic at age 47. And up until the point where I became diabetic and just a year before my, my sugars and my blood pressure and everything looked okay. Yeah. So, you know, it just sort of snuck up on me. It's interesting to compare that with me. I was thin for, for uh, up until probably about 22 or 23 and then started to put on weight. I was uh, diabetic by 38. So I was diabetic 10 mm. years before Carl was. Uh, and I was, mm. a, I was the thin kid who, who put on the weight later on in age. Which, interesting. You know, that, that, that supports um, uh, Dr. Reed's um, suggestion. Well, there you go. N equals two. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it lines up. And, uh, yeah, and this is, this is uh, but probably not uh, too much detail on this one, but it's a great question. It's interesting to know that there's even science and studies that even explain those side questions. So, mm. basically, your fat tissue would appear... Uh, when you begin to push uh, overnutrition into your body or the bad types of foods mm. and you go towards insulin resistance, your fat tissue, what's really important about it is it has a thing called GLUT4, which uh, translocates uh, to the cell membranes of your fat cells and take up glucose. You know, people have told me I had four glutes before. You know, I walk into a room and they say, hey, Carl, have a couple of seats. <laughs> you got to clench those glutes, man. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, I know I'll keep it fairly simple. So anyway, this this uh, very important uh, mechanism in the fat tissue is to on the in a response to insulin is to take up glucose. Now, your fat tissue only takes up five or 10 percent of the glucose that's floating. So it's not like they're important to mop up lots of glucose. That's yeah, not right. the point. But it's important that the insulin switches on the glucose transport system mm -hmm. because there's secondary processes that occur when that's working properly. And those secondary processes uh, turn on de novo lipogenesis or the generation of lipids in the fat tissue. And yeah. these actually, many of them are signaling molecules. So you're not only talking about um, taking up sugar and moving it into fat cells as fat, but now you're talking about what's happening in the fat cell as well. You know, the creation of triglycerides exactly. and all of that. 
the creation of triglycerides, but also it appears from recent papers, a whole range of anti-diabetic, anti-inflammatory, fat-based signaling molecules that flow out to the liver and the system. Uh, I see. So, so previously, we were under the impression that it was the high insulin itself that was the signal, but it may be a step after that. Well, well high insulin is a signal, right? But, but the fat, what's going on in the fat cell is another signal. Yes, and many signals it would appear. Uh, wow. So I give an example that my people might be able to see it simply. In mouse experiments based on this, what they've done is gone in and they've switched off the glucose transport in just the fat tissue. So everywhere else, muscle and liver, everything's fine. Mice that only have a defect in the glucose transport in just their fat tissue. Now, I'm fascinated by the technology behind that. I mean, how did they do that? Oh, it... <laughs> it's beautiful because they're called knockouts and this particular GLUT4 knockout, rather than knocking out the whole glucose transport, uh, which ruins the mouse basically, yeah. um, they managed to cross um, strain. It's quite complex. They knocked out just the glucose in just the adipose and verified everywhere else the glucose was fine. Wow, that's, perfect. that's great. Incredible. Yeah. What happened was those mouse mice were profoundly diabetic. Yeah. So they basically collapsed their system insulin sensitivity. They collapsed their whole system just by tweaking the glucose transport just in the fat cells. Because they were unable to, uh, to trigger off these mechanisms that send messaging to... Yes. Uh, right. So it's, yeah, literally mm. cut off all the signaling. Wow. You've cut off the signaling. And that's the way I now think of adipose, not just as a mop-up sponge or this sure. simplistic insulin gets the glucose out of the way right no think of the adipose as one of the master dial controllers signaling the whole system and keeping things healthy wow and they've done many experiments since where they've switched off de novo lipogenesis i mentioned in the in the just yep. the adipose tissue same thing so they can collapse a mouse systemically by tweaking these pathways in the adipose. So you're basically just expanding the granularity at which we understand this, you know, mechanism of what's of insulin resistance. You're saying, okay, it's not just that insulin is high, but when insulin is high, what happens? The the cascade effect mm. goes into, you know, when sugar gets taken up into a fat cell and, and converted to fat. And and then that particular fat cell is signaling all these things that we would previously attribute to just the insulin alone. Yes, it's another messenger system that's very important. Now that said, Carol, the person who has this problem, they will also be a bit hyperinsulinemic and the hyperinsulin will cause insulin resistance in many organs. Mm. So in parallel, that hyperinsulinemia, that's a problem as well. But now we add to it, there's multiple control systems going Got out it. of whack. Got it. And that, that's why it's so bad. Uh, one of the reasons it's so bad. Mm. So if you take that adipose signaling and leave that and say, wow, okay, that's interesting. And you've got hyperinsulinemia will go with the resistance mm -hmm. and resistance will build with the hyperinsulinemia. Mm -hmm. Everything's reinforcing itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's really a bunch of control systems that are all uh, referencing off each other. I mean, mm. you could call it a recursive function, right, Richard? Yeah, yeah. I guess it kind of is. It's a, it's a, a vicious cycle, really. Right. In software, yes. uh, a recursive function is one that calls itself. So, you know, the joke for recursion mm. is if you look it up in the dictionary, it says, see recursion. 
<laughs> Excellent. And I remember from my Fortran in engineering programming, the while do loops and the for next. Oh, yeah, sure. And you could just get them to go around in circles. <laughs> yeah, well, the, I, I so, think of a lot of these things as as, as programming constructs because that's really that's, that's mm. my understanding of control systems. And so I can imagine, for example, uh, one simple mechanism to describe insulin resistance getting worse is uh, if your fat cells are becoming slightly insulin resistant, that means that they they are releasing free fatty acids and into a system that has insulin. Mm. And if you have free fatty acids in the in circulation and insulin, insulin will, will drive them into other places, such as creating ectopic fat inside your pancreas. Mm. And in your ectopic liver. Ectopic fat in the pancreas makes your pancreas you know, it ma- makes it more insulin resistant. So you mm. know, it, it, it's a series of it's a series of uh, systems that uh, that all lean upon each other, and when one of them is slightly out of kilter, it forces all the others to go out, out of kilter as well. Ivor, is there evidence to suggest that uh, this extra fat not only gets stored in the pancreas but in the liver and in the kidneys? Yeah, pretty much throughout over the long term, and when things get more advanced, you know, the fat will get begin to get stored all over the place generally speaking Hmm. yeah but the liver is one of the most important places Uh, i mean hyperinsulinemia in itself is destructive to the pancreatic beta cells yeah right uh, and also the ectopic fat as is glucose absolutely so excessive Hmm. quantities of any of these things so it's exactly as you you said there it's self-reinforcing because as you begin to develop the problem the problem itself begins to reinforce and accelerate the problem Hmm. Yeah. You can actually stop the whole thing by just cutting off the inputs. You yeah. know, as we've of seen from yes, you can stop Cut it. Out carbohydrates. I mean, yeah, exactly. And in extreme cases for people who are profoundly insulin resistant or diabetics who who have a lot of metabolic dysregulation, you may need to add fasting. Uh, you may need to restrict some of the fat. And you know, but but for a lot of people who are not too bad carbohydrate restriction protein moderation will be enough input uh, alteration Mm. to actually get things back which is fantastic it's an easy fix so if we're fairly quick about it then that's the fundamental adipose signaling thing another phase you can get into is adipose tissue inflammation and when that begins on your journey the inflammation will cause a lot more I mean tons more negative bad feedback loops Mm -hmm. so as you get uh, macrophage are recruited because your fat cells are getting a little too big mm. it's a good response the body has done it for good reasons however it'll prevent more fat cell proliferation and growing yeah and it will also cause more insulin resistance through many known pathways now so the inflammation reaction will start making your adipose tissue more dysfunctional and will start it releasing more of the free fatty acids richard you mentioned into a system that does not need them. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. But, but what can the body do? Because mm. the inputs are driving all of this, and you keep putting in the inputs, so you're really causing it, essentially. Right. Now, that's the inflammation. That's a big one, and it's later in your journey. Yeah. Right? It's after the initial dysfunction I discussed. Once you begin to get inflammation, in one report, they could predict the insulin resistance of the individuals 98% accurate just using the macrophage in their fat tissue, the amount of macrophage. Wow. wow, indeed. Wow. That's specific. Yeah. That's specific. And one more measure, that and the adiponectin, okay. which is a hormone released by the fat. Right. So again, you can predict the system insulin resistance with two 
um, fat-based measures. 98% of it. Yeah. So it'll give people an idea. This is huge. So that's the inflammation. Um, And then the next thing is what I call the uh, VLDL ApoB merry-go-round. Yeah. And this is essentially where... Once you get a little more insulin resistant, you can no longer process triglyceride properly. And they had one great study where people ate mixed, reasonably healthy meals, and they had slim guys and they had heavy guys who were a little insulin resistant, but their metrics weren't bad. Now, what do you consider a mixed, reasonably healthy meal? Um, well, uh, I looked it up. It was a standard mixed dietary guidelines type okay. meal. It was classic. In other words, food they pyramid. didn't feed food pyramid type stuff. So they, yeah. they didn't feed them known bad junk food to make them dysfunctional. They but they did that. have whole grains and fruits and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're orthodox healthy eating. Right. So they fed <laughs> them anyway, three meals and tracked them over 24 hours. And even though the blood metrics looked okay with the heavier guys and they were reasonably healthy, what they did with the triglyceride from the meals and from their liver was massively different. Hmm. So hmm. what the slim guys did, and they radio isotope labeled the fat from the meal and the fat in the LDL or cholesterol particles from the liver. So they actually tracked where all the fat was going from the different wow. places. It was, it was really Round cool. Deep. And in short, the slim guys were taking in the meals They were taking huge amounts of the triglyceride from the meals into their fat tissue, beautifully. More Mm. meals, more take up. And later when they were fasting, they sent it all out again as fuel. Beautiful battery system. Yeah. 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 That's the slim guys who were insulin sensitive. The heavy guys, not too heavy, little heavier, um, they were actually taking up much less, half the amount of triglyceride from the meals into their fat. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Where was it going? Where's it going? Yeah, yeah. that's what I said. Where? To the liver. <laughs> the liver. You got it. <laughs> it's got to go to so, the liver. Of course. It goes to the liver. But, but get this. This is really fun. They radio tracked how much these guys were taking up from VLDL ApoB particles that come out of the liver. Right. And they found out that the slim guys were taking up not much. And they had low VLDL, right? Low ApoB. But Mm. the heavy guys were taking up twice as much triglycerides out of the VLDL ApoB particles. And they were taking that up into their adipose. So they were desperately trying to mop up triglyceride from ApoB, VLDL, the bad cholesterol, Mm. right? Yeah. And their their adipose was busy doing that. So you're right. There was a merry-go-round. Yeah. They were not able to take it up from the meal. It was going into the liver in chylomicrons the liver was building up the fat and it has to export it the hell out of there in apob Ooh, the bad cholesterol and then the fat tissue is trying to mop that crap up (laughs) it's It's insane it's almost like the body says as long as we keep stuff moving you know we'll be okay right it's a juggling act yeah it's it's a joke it's a dysfunctional juggling act that i think it's just insane to an engineer, to any doctor who understands it. And those yeah. people weren't even, they didn't even have bad blood metrics yet, those heavy guys. Wow. But it shows you the craziness that's going on under the hood. So the primary problem here is that the, when the person eats the meal, they make chylomicrons in their gut 
which are mm. lipoprotein, massive lipoproteins full of triglycerides, they send them off to the fat cells to be consumed and the fat cells just aren't buying any. Mm. And so I assume they're arriving back at the liver as partially partially deflated chylomicrons, chylomicron remnants. Exactly. So it's the fat cell refusing to buy that causes the whole problem. Yeah, or two, two sides of a coin. We can't prove exactly, but essentially that's what's happening. The chylomicrons can be uh, used in muscle for energy, uh, but if they're not, yeah, they should go to the adipose, taken in and let out later when you're fasting. Sure. But in the guys who are dysfunctional, they ain't getting into the adipose. The receptor activity for those chylomicrons is lowered and the adipose ends up busy mopping up the ApoB triglyceride Mm. after the chylomicron fat from the meal has gone through your liver. So that is, that is a, a tragedy. And mm. these people are early on their journey. They're not yet got free fatty acid metrics in their blood gone bad yet, mm. but they are hyperinsulinemic. And that's mm. where you're back to the hyperinsulinemia as the crucial marker, especially after a meal right. of all of this dysregulation. Yeah, And you can see it 20 years beforehand. Oh, generally, yeah. I mean, full-blown diabetes in recent studies where they did craft tests 11 years before, nine years before, wow. you can predict um, from your craft test, the best craft test patterns had a couple of percent diabetes 10 years later. Hmm. And right. the worst craft patterns were up to half of them were full-blown. <gasps> wow. wow. That, that's it's huge predictive That's a power. pretty specific test, yeah. Awesome. And it turns out all, this, all these researchers were doing the craft test and they didn't even know it. Yeah, they're just doing post-glucose insulin, and, but they don't know anything really generally about the patterns and craft's work in the 70s. Right. And remember, craft was taking people with bad patterns and fixing them right. and getting them right back to his pattern one yeah. with low-carb diets in 1972. Incredible. It's all the patient record. <laughs> Yeah. But no one would listen to him because, right, it's the fat had to be bad. Yeah, this whole um, uh, focus on the adipose tissue as being responsible for diabetes, it sort of reminds me of like the the, four, the, the blind man describing an elephant and each one describes a different part of the elephant. Mm. And, you know, mm. I, I remember when I was first diagnosed with diabetes, I had a very prominent endocrinologist, uh, a man by the name of uh, Ellis Samuels, who was in fact the first person in Europe to do an insulin assay um, and studied mm. with Bershon and and Yellow. Wow. Um, and yeah, and and he was a very prominent man in the in the endocrinology field. And his attitude was it's obesity. He said he literally said to me, if if I can't get your obesity fixed, then your diabetes will get worse. And so what I'm going to do is if I can't get your obesity Moving in the right direction within six months, we're going to start talking about bariatric procedures, right. uh, lap, uh, laparoscopic mm. uh, uh, gastric bands, and all those kind of things, which is it's incredible. To, that was his fixation, and then and then you know we we have uh, I mean Diabetes Australia and and the American Diabetes Association are also fixed on on fixated on uh, obesity as the cause of, yeah. of diabetes. And then we have other people who are focused on insulin resistance in muscles. Oh, well, you know, if uh, if uh, muscles become resistant to taking up glucose or uh, resistant to hearing the signal of insulin to take up glucose, then that starts that whole cascade off mm -hmm. as well. But, you know, the, the, the this fat-specific or adipocyte-specific focus on diabetes seems to get 
the initial step or at least one of the more important initial steps of the entire yeah. cascade. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and get it out there. And it's not the obesity that causes the problem, though it does. It's a good reflector that the problem may likely be there. Sure. Yeah, it's a symptom of the same problem. Yeah, it's a symptom in a sense. Um, and we've seen the metabolically healthy obese that show it's not the obesity. Some people can right. become obese in a healthy fashion. So sure. it's not the cause. And Gabor was actually great for pointing that out as well on the forum recently. You know, you, you can eat a lot of material and become overweight. But once your insulin and leptin signaling is still good, you're, you're still good. Yeah. Now, those people who are very heavy but insulin sensitive, they do over time have a higher likelihood of becoming dysfunctional than a slim person who's healthy. Sure. But that's really just because they're obviously pushing some of the wrong levers and over time they mm. will they will fall out of bed. Right, but, but, right. But yeah, <laughs> at yeah. some point. Yeah. And yeah. um, just one point on the muscle, the tragedy of all the focus on muscle as being the insulin resistant important uh, organ is uh, the reason that happened is most of the glucose is taken up in the muscle and very little in the fat. Hmm. Right. So people always assume the muscle was more important, but they didn't know about the signaling I mentioned. Yeah. So that's why decades have been lost focusing on the muscle. One mouse study I have, at one week into a bad diet, the adipose tissue is profoundly insulin resistant and the liver is gone. The liver glucose production is out of control. And it's wow. only at three weeks that the muscle becomes resistant as a knock-on effect. One thing I didn't realize was that the muscle takes up glucose without insulin being involved. It doesn't have yep. to use GLUT4 to, to, to push glucose into the muscle. The muscle has other uh, transporters in order to, to transport glucose, but GLUT4 is, enables it to take up a bulk amount of glucose. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't need insulin. It will take in through GLUT1. It'll, it'll passively take in glucose based on substrate as needed. Yeah. Um, but it is important, the insulin-stimulated GLUT4 in muscle, but it's just not nearly so big a, as might have been believed before. Right. Uh, and they, they even have mice. I'll tell you a fun one. If you like the switch off in the adipose of the glucose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had mice where they switched off the GLUT4 in the muscle. And in fairness, by switching off that GLUT4 glucose transport in the muscle of these mice, they became insulin resistant. Sure. Fair enough. But you know what they did then? They then overexpressed the GLUT4 in their adipose tissue. They turned it up and they fixed the mice. So even if your really? GLUT4, <laughs> yes. Wow. So even if your GLUT4 is gone in your muscle, the adipose is so important as a signaler, turning up the GLUT4 in the adipose can recover the mouse while he still has no GLUT4 in the muscle. I said he, I, I presume yeah, some yeah. of them. <laughs> she mice. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually proof positive now that uh, that the muscle is 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 a knock on effect. It's, it happens further on down the line. You want to get uh, upstream to find the problem. It's happening at the at mm. the adipocytes. Yeah, the muscle. If you do more exercise, the muscle will become more effective in taking up glucose and, and will help you. It's not that the muscle isn't important, mm. uh, but yeah, it's more recognizing that the muscle is is a little downstream of the problem right um in a sense yeah so the takeaway for us listeners for all of this what should we do to fix our insulin resistance 
A ketogenic diet. <laughs> a ketogenic diet, absolutely. Um, so I would, I always go through the list and I, I might put a link to my last slide in my talk, mm. the tree of chronic disease, and it shows a lot of roots. Mm. But a big root is insulin resistance and leptin resistance and all of that. Right. And I put a lot of feeders into fixing that. Some people will have to do more things than others. Some people are more profoundly affected. But yeah. lowering the carb right down, no brainer. Moderate protein, appropriate for your body weight. You mm. mentioned that earlier. Uh, I think Richard or Carl sure. about, yeah, that's very important. Um, you want to get sun exposure, vitamin D. That's important through many mechanistic pathways. Yes. High mm. omega-3, low omega-6, no vegetable oils. Magnesium is implicated a lot ah, in the yes. insulin signaling. And Maybe 70 or 80% of people are magnesium deficient with profound consequences. Yeah. No one really knows because they're not doing the testing. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> um, I could probably mention more interestingly, if you take an example, smoking, smoking causes huge amounts of damage to your body. Yeah, Everyone knows sure. it's full of toxins. What people don't realize is if you stop smoking, your insulin levels will drop fast within a few weeks interesting wow so so smoking also drives insulin signaling issues another one sleep and they're talking mm -hmm. about sleep lately they got a bunch of u.s marines and all they did was they reduced their sleep to four or five hours a night for right. a few weeks right and their insulin sensitivity was halved at the end of the experiment wow. and they did no other intervention so lack of sleep and stress will upset the hormonal regulation and cause insulin sensitivity problems another way. Mm -hmm. So there's loads of roots, but, but I guess if you tackle them all and you use your, the measures we talked about to say, hey, I'm good now, mm. uh, you know, you'll get there. And uh, yep. ketogenic is a big part of it, though. But that fixes a lot of other things, too, not just insulin resistance, right? Sure. Therapeutic mm. for cancers, therapeutic for epilepsy, more and more it's coming out that that it's a therapeutic therapy not just a lifestyle yeah alzheimer's dementia, dementia uh, yeah. alzheimer's and parkinson's yeah. oh yeah yeah right. and uh, alzheimer's again they've shown now is the glucose utilization in the brain and it's mm -hmm. kind of type 3 diabetes yeah so yeah. yet again it. we're back to insulin <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is the elephant in the room Right. It kind of is. And I really, really appreciate what you and Gabor and Dr. Gerber are putting together here. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that and we will link to it as soon as it becomes available. Oh, right. Yeah. So uh, Gabor and myself, all that couple of months collaboration and I worked all through Christmas too. <laughs> Endless hmm. papers. But we've got this kind of coherent um, talk now that goes into quite some detail and I gave it at the Physicians for Ancestral Health Winter Retreat in um, South Beach, Miami mm. last week. And that's the talk that really does the detail on, on what I touched on. Yeah. Um, so that's the one when it's available, physicians will release it themselves very shortly. And absolute great to link to that for anyone who wants the hardcore stuff. So Ivor, it's really impressive all the research and studies that you have done. And I get people coming up to me over and over again saying, I don't know who to trust. There's so much fake news. There's so much fake science. And, and how do I know, you know, can you give us any general guidelines in terms of if we want to find out these things for ourselves and do some research, what the smells of bad research might be? Yeah, that's a, and people write to me about that quite a lot and they want to become more expert and where should they study? Where should they go? How, how do they learn how to interpret science? 
I, I'd probably say if people are interested, they really should read a couple of books about bad science and get a feel for the nefarious activity that goes on. Right. So Ben Goldacre's Bad Science. Oh, yes. Book, He's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that would give you a great feeling for the kind of uh, messing. Malcolm McKendrick's Doctoring Data, I read. Ah. That one's cool. To Yeah, it shows all the cheating over the years with, with experiments and how they're biased. Oh, yeah, or Zoe Harcombe's blog. She takes apart uh, scientific reports and shows all the flaws, and that's a great way to learn. Mm. Professor Grant Schofield in New Zealand or George mm. um, Henderson who works with them. Mm. So if you look those guys up and look at their blogs, they pick apart and you'll learn how studies are twisted. And if you really want to get serious, I mean, if you read a book um, called the, let me see, what's it called? It was my college text for biochemistry, The Chemistry of Life, fourth edition by Stephen Rose. Mm. If people really want to get into this, you want a grounding in biochemistry. And that's a great book. Um, I wonder if there are online courses that you could take in biochemistry that would give you a good uh, a good uh, substrate to use one of your words. <laughs> of, yeah, uh, you know, good foundation. Well, I believe the Khan Academy, K H A N. I haven't used it, but I've been told by good people that it's a gr- they run a series of videos about biochemistry. Wow! And I believe yeah. they're approachable and free. Yeah, they're free. I believe. Yeah. And then joining groups where people are talking science, yeah. talking this stuff. Gabor's is pretty good. Lower insulin. Ah, Gabor's is medium core. Uh, lower insulin on Facebook. Mm. Hardcore is like hyperlipid. Okay. Ah, yes. Yeah, that's hardcore. And then optimizing nutrition, I mentioned in my talk. Marty sure. uh, Marty Kendall, he was a guest on our show. That's it. I always mix him up with uh, the other Marty. Marty Kendall, uh, and he he goes through a lot of scientific papers, and, and there's so many more. Look to the blogs and look to the... Uh, if you take uh, Mike Ead's protein power, go through his mm. back catalogue and he repeatedly does incredibly erudite posts uh, on studies and describing where they're wrong and, and theories. And he manages to translate it for the average person. So that's mm. another protein power blog. So anyway, that's just Great. top of my head. I missed loads of people, but... Well, we'll link to those on the show and in the show notes. And uh, so people can go to Two Keto Dudes and, you know, this is episode 51. Just go find it. Uh, Insulin resistance from the bottom up with Ivor Cummins. Thank you, Ivor. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye. Wow. I never fail to be impressed by Ivor. Speaking as a professional communicator of technology, technical ideas mm. which is that's that's what we do that's what we do um uh, he's very good at it yeah he is oh, he's very good he is and i also appreciate that he he goes deep and you don't have to yes. follow him down the rabbit hole if you but if you want to he's got resources for you there it's fascinating it's all fascinating stuff and you know what else is fascinating recipes, recipes. <laughs> <laughs> so i've got a good recipe this week all right uh, i've got one from julie and that's uh julie's crustless quiche so this is a quiche it's a quiche and it has no crust okay. and what we do is we make this quiche in a glass pie plate yeah and it's basically we'll make six servings and what we do is we put it in the fridge straight out of the oven. Oh. Uh, so once it's once it's cooled in the oven, essentially, rather than cutting into it, 
We put it in the fridge and then that really lets, lets it set. And then when you cut it, it's going to have nice sharp edges and it's going to come off the plate very easily. Wow, that's great. Yeah, the ingredients are four eggs, uh, about 200 grams of tasty cheese mm. and uh, about 400 mils of pure cream, heavy whipped cream. Yeah. Uh, so I think 400 mils, is, is that about a pint? I think maybe th- two-thirds of a pint. That's Okay. Uh, you know, a, a fair amount of pure cream. So uh, we also add uh, one teaspoon of erythritol. This is optional. Um, the original uh, quiche recipe that we were using actually had a teaspoon of sugar in the recipe. Oh, wow. It balances out the flavor somehow. But um, anyway, we, we add a teaspoon of erythritol and it, uh, it's uh, quite, uh, quite nice flavor. Yeah. Um, we also have five grams of cayenne pepper mm-hmm. and we have a leek. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start off by chopping a leek and uh, browning it in, within a little butter, probably about you know, a tablespoon of butter. Mm. So we're going to brown the leek off. Nice. And uh, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> and we're also going to have about 500 grams of, of ham in this. And oh, yeah. I was wondering where the ham was. Yeah, the ham's got to be in there. You got to have ham or bacon. So we basically start off with the, with the, uh, with the leek, we're going to. You want to get the leek till it's sort of slightly golden. Yeah. And then I put I put the leek, uh, the cooked leek, in the bottom of our pie plate, and then move on to the ham. Oh. I'm going to dice up the ham. I'm going to fry that up a little bit on the fry pan, and then I'm going to put that in the in the pie plate. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm going to whisk uh, the eggs and the cream and the cayenne pepper, and I might have maybe two and a half grams of uh, ground paprika. Oh, this sounds delicious. Cayenne and paprika. So, uh, so basically, you whisk this and the erythritol. If you're going to use it, you whisk this until it's well combined. Um, and so now you have a bowl with whisked uh, cream and egg. Eggy stuff. You have a eggy stuff. You have a pie plate which has got leeks and uh, ham yep. ham uh, cubes in it. Mm-hmm. And um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take our cheese, we're going to grate it. That's 200 grams of tasty cheese. We're going to grate that over the top of the the pie plate with the ham and the leek in it. Okay. And then we're going to pour the egg cream mixture over the top of the nice. ham, cheese, and leek. So uh, it's interesting that you don't just mix it all up together. You layer it like this. Yeah. And the, one of the reasons is because you want the uh, the quiche to have discrete layers so that it looks beautiful when, yeah. it, when it comes out. That's great. Rather than being a, a mix of stuff. Um so we're going to put it in a hot oven for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. and the hot oven is going to be at uh, 200 Celsius, about 390 Fahrenheit. Okay. And after the 20 minutes, I'm going to reduce the heat down to 180 Celsius, which is probably about 375 Fahrenheit, right. for about 10 minutes. And because we don't want it to run away, we don't want it to run away. We, we want to get it slightly golden, and then reduce the heat just a little bit to uh, to cook in the cook the inside through. Sure. And what we're going to do is we're going to use a knife. To, or a wooden skewer to check for doneness. And basically yeah. what you want to do is you want to pull the knife out and if it's liquid on the end, keep it in for a little bit longer. Right. And it can can probably take about another 20 minutes. Um, it, it just depends, but you're going to have to keep testing it. Yeah. But once it's done, we just turn off the heat in the oven mm-hmm. and we just pop the door open a little bit and just let the quiche in there to cool mm-hmm. and then uh, put it in the fridge and – the next day, generally, mm. we we carve it, and that and allows you to get sharp edges, yeah. and also that allows the quiche to come off the the bottom of the pie plate easily. Beautiful. That's it. That sounds so quiche. good. What for tasty cheese? What do you like? I like Gruyere in my in my quiche. 
And cheddar also. Yeah, I don't mind a Gruyere. I've, we've got some aged cheddar that we use, which mm. is quite nice as well. So, but we've got um, one of our uh, one of our large cheese manufacturers in Australia, Bega Cheese, actually came from the area where I've been living for the past ten years. Wow. So it was really our local cheese, and they've just bought Vegemite, so uh, which used oh. to be owned by an American company, and it's now owned by this Australian cheese company. Okay. And Vegemite and cheese goes together very well. So anyway. I'm off topic. All right. So what have you got for us, Carl? Oh, okay. Well, my recipe today isn't mine, but this comes from one Brenda Zorn. Zorn. Yeah, and she's a, a hero in our parts. And um, these she are is. chocolate mints. And she posted the recipe, not on our blog, not on Facebook, but in the ketogenic forums. How good is the recipe section in the ketogenic forums? It's getting huge. Yeah. It's and amazing. I like it because it's not just us posting, you know, it's it's uh, no, the it. community. So it's a recipe told in the first person. Okay. And she says, equal parts butter and coconut oil melted. Add stevia, cacao powder, which is cocoa powder or whatever, mm -hmm. and mint extract to taste. And I want to say something about cacao powder and cocoa powder. The processed cocoa powder, like Hershey's cocoa powder, actually has yeah. some carbs in it. Whereas if you get pure cacao powder, generally doesn't, or it has a lot less. Yeah. So yeah. if look for some organic cacao. I haven't found a good source yet, but I promise I will and I'll report back. So she says, as for the specifics, I just wing it. But I think for this batch, it was three tablespoons of ghee, which is clarified butter. Clarified butter, yeah. Yep, G-H-E-E, -E, ghee. And three tablespoons of coconut oil, 10 drops of liquid stevia, and by the way, stevia is the perfect sweetener for chocolate because it tends to be a little bitter anyway. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I agree. The the only problem with uh with using liquid stevia is it's okay if you're using coconut uh, oil and butter because mm. they don't mind a little bit of liquid, right. but if you're using cacao butter or cacao uh, basically the the cacao fat, yeah. uh it'll seize when it, hit, it gets hit with a liquid. So ah, that's right and you told us that when you made chocolates before. So that's that's good to know. So I guess you could use powdered stevia, you know, if you right. if you have it. Uh, and then, of course, one quarter teaspoon of mint extract and one tablespoon of cacao powder or cocoa powder. And uh, use a silicone mold if you can. They make beautiful candies every time. And she's got some pictures here that just look amazing. Yeah, I reckon that's the trick for portion control for chocolates because, yeah. you know, the, the, the problem with chocolates always is once you start, you're going to keep going. But yeah. if you use a silicone mold to make small you know, small chocolate forms, then you, you can stop it at a discrete amount yep. in theory. <laughs> so, Brenda, thank you for that recipe. I'm going to go try it right now. And, uh, wow, that's a, a show. We went a little long today, an hour and a half, but uh, I think it was worth it, don't you? Yeah, we went long and we went deep. We certainly did. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on their website. And you can follow us on Twitter at Two Keto Dudes, on Instagram at Two Keto Dudes, and of course, if you want to join our forum, it's www.ketogenicforums.com or forum.twoketo.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, <laughs> t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.twoketo.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, hit the donate button on our website at www.twoketodudes.com. Keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. 
Hey, Ivor, keep calm and keto on. Yep, that's it. Keep calm and keto on. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> All right. Yeah, thanks, we'll, Ivor. Yeah, thanks. And we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. <laughs>